Many years ago, uh, one of the first uh, passages of Scripture uh, that I was uh, challenged to memorize uh, is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. A very fundamental passage uh, for every believer. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make, your, make straight your paths. We're instructed to uh, lean not on our own understanding, but rather to trust in the Lord and to trust in His Word with all of our hearts. Now, we live in a world that is living contrary to God. We live in a world that is living in rebellion against God. We live in a world that is under the curse. And many times what the scriptures instruct us in how we are to live is very counter to the way that our culture lives. That's what we would expect. All right? We were dead in trespasses and sins. God has saved us. And He's called us to Himself to live a new life. A life of holiness before Him. And that is going to be a life that is very distinct from how the world lives. And so again and again, when we come to different instructions in Scripture for how we are to live, we need to be mindful of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That we are to trust in the Lord. And to trust in the Lord would include trusting His Word. We're to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. We're not to lean on our own understanding. If we were to do things our way, we would be living quite contrary to God's ways. What seems right in our eyes oftentimes is not right in God's eyes. And so we have to lean not on our own understanding, but trust in the Lord and His Word with all of our heart, in all of our ways acknowledging Him, and He will make straight our paths. We come this morning to a passage that calls us to live in a very different way than the way that this world lives. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16, uh, which I'll read to us now. So please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's holy word. Please be seated. 
Now, as we come to this text, I know that many of you have been divorced. And my intention this morning is not to heap condemnation on you. You have suffered, and I do not intend to add to your suffering. I trust that you have repented of any ways uh, that you contributed to the rupture that occurred in your marriage. I trust that you have confessed your sins to God and to others as needed, and that you have received God's forgiveness. I also trust that after going through the heartache of divorce, you would like me to say to others in the congregation what I will be saying this morning so they might not suffer the same heartache that you have suffered. If you are married, I pray that this passage will be used of the Lord to strengthen you in your marriage commitment. If you are single and may get married in the future, I pray that this passage will teach you to think biblically about marriage. And that this passage will prepare you to be fully committed in marriage if the Lord should lead you to get married one day. The first half of this passage gives instruction to Christians who are married to a believer. And the second half gives instructions to Christians who are married to an unbeliever. The main instruction in the first half is, if you are married to a believer, you should not divorce. Now, remember what occasioned the writing of this section in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul refers to a letter that he received. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The church in Corinth sent Paul a letter. Uh, they, They brought up various issues in that letter. And Paul either quotes or summarizes a a statement that they made in that letter where they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul has in this chapter been majorly qualifying this statement. He he cannot let that statement stand as it is. In verses 2 through 6, the Apostle taught that married couples should regularly have sexual intimacy as husband and wife. Becoming Christians does not mean that those who are married should now abstain from sexual relations. In verses 7 through 9, the Apostle taught that when it comes to serving the Lord, there are advantages to being single. Becoming a Christian does not mean a single person now needs to get married. However, if Christian singles struggle with sexual temptation, Paul says they should seek to get married. It is is not more spiritual to be single, nor is it more spiritual to be married. As I explained this passage last week, I said that we are uh, not to understand Uh, from this passage, that marriage is the solution for a lack of self-control. Paul said that if you are single and you you do not have self-control, that would be in matters of sexual temptation, you should get married. Now I explained that we are not to understand from this that marriage is the solution for a lack of self-control, because a lack of self-control is a heart issue. And changing your marital status doesn't change your 
heart. But that marriage is a protection. Marriage is a help when it comes to uh, resisting sexual temptation. Now I want to add briefly to this before we go on. Be careful of marrying someone who regularly, I'm sorry, who really struggles with sexual temptation. If they really struggle with sexual temptation before marriage, they will also struggle in marriage. So do not be naive. We have to take this passage and combine it with other passages to exercise wisdom in our decision to marry another individual. And we need to recognize that changing our outward circumstances, changing our status, doesn't change our heart. Keep it all in perspective. Now, in their letter, the Corinthians showed themselves to be lacking understanding of singleness, marriage, and divorce. And so, in our text that we come to now, in verses 10 through 16, the apostle continues giving instruction that the Corinthian church needed on these matters. Let's look closely at the first major instruction The instruction that if you are married to a believer, you should not divorce. Look with me at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Which means the wife should not divorce her husband. There are two words for divorce in our text And this word to separate is one of the two words for divorce. The New American Standard translates this word in verse 10 with the word leave. Uh, If if we, we can translate it that way here. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. That Paul here is talking in verse 10 about divorce is clear when you read the next verse. Uh, For the next verse, he says, But if she does, she should remain unmarried. Now, this word for divorce that we find in verse 10, uh, to separate from your spouse, uh, this word for divorce speaks of leaving one's spouse. The other word for divorce that we have in our text, that we will see later, speaks of sending one's spouse away. Divorce could happen in either way. In the Greco-Roman world, a husband could divorce his wife, and a wife could divorce her husband. Divorce did not require the agreement of the other spouse, and divorce did not require a legal document, like it did among the Jews. Jesus refers in his teaching back to, um, well, The Pharisees, as they are talking with Jesus, they refer back to Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy, where Moses talked about a certificate of divorce, a a legal document. Divorce, though, in the Greco-Roman world, in which the Corinthians lived, divorce did not require a legal document, like it did among the Jews, and like it does in our society. Now, in verse 10, Paul uses the word separate to speak of divorce. The same word that Jesus used in Matthew 19.6 when he quoted Genesis 2.24. In Matthew 19.6, Jesus said, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
Let man not separate. Paul uses the same word here in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, meaning to divorce her husband. Now notice uh, that um, Paul says, not I but the Lord. Paul is indicating with these words that what Paul communicates here is an instruction that the Lord Jesus gave during His earthly ministry. So let's go back and see that instruction that Jesus gave uh, that Paul basically summarizes for us in our text. Go back to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 This is the longest passage in the Gospels uh, on the issue of divorce. Matthew 19 will begin at verse 3. Verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him, that is to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. They they, they have misapplied the teaching of of Moses, in the law of Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, it said that if you did divorce your wife and give her a certificate of divorce, and then you married another, um, and then you gave that one a certificate of divorce, you could not come back to your first wife and remarry her because in between you married someone else. That was the law. But the Jews of Jesus' day, the teachers of the law, they looked at that and they say, well, well, Moses, Moses allowed divorce. Moses permitted divorce. He just said you have to give a certificate if you're doing it. Jesus says in verse 8, after they've referred to to that passage, in verse 8, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He recognized the hardness of Israel's heart. He recognized that they would divorce, even though it was contrary to God's will. And so, so he told them what to do in a situation where they had divorced. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Is he quoted from Genesis 2, 24. And I say to you in verse 9, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Uh, in this passage that I've read, the Lord Jesus forbids divorce. And he forbids remarriage after divorce. First, Jesus applies Genesis 2, 24 to the issue of divorce. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a command in Genesis 2 to hold fast to your wife. That's the opposite of divorce. Hold fast to her. 
And then Jesus reveals that divorce and remarriage amounts to adultery. Breaking the spirit of the commandment that forbids adultery. The command is hold fast to your wife. So if you divorce your wife and you go marry another, that amounts to adultery. Jesus here teaches the permanence of marriage. It is a lifelong covenant. A lifelong commitment. It is a lifelong one flesh covenant before God. When Malachi confronts divorce, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, he refers to marriage as a covenant. He says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Malachi says, God was witness to your marriage covenant. When you entered into marriage, you entered into a covenant before God. And when Malachi confronts those who had divorced, he describes their act of divorce as being faithless. Being faithless to their spouse. Faithless to the marriage covenant. Now in our text that I just read here in Matthew 19, the Lord Jesus gives one exception to his prohibition of divorce and remarriage. In the case that your spouse committed sexual immorality, which is unlawful sexual intercourse, in the event that your spouse has committed sexual immorality, Jesus does permit you to divorce uh, the one who committed that adultery. And he does permit remarriage after that. We go on to verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Saying this is a high standard. Except, with the exception of the, the one exception Jesus gave, no divorce and then no remarriage after that. This is a high standard. There, there, there were many Jews who, who believed and taught that you could be divorced for almost any reason. Disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not, not to marry. This is a high, high standard. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. As the Holy Spirit works in your heart and mind to accept God's revelation through Christ. Now, Turn over to Matthew 5. There's one more passage in Matthew where Jesus gives instruction regarding uh, divorce and remarriage. Matthew chapter 5. Starting at verse 31. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is taking the law of God and he's applying it in ways that the Jews were failing to apply it. In Matthew 5.31, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So, quoting that same passage that the Pharisees quoted in Matthew 19, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
it was understood in that day that a woman really needed a husband, the way that society was, was structured and so forth. Um, and so Jesus is telling Jewish men, uh, if you divorce your wife, you make her commit adultery. Not saying it would be right for her to remarry after that divorce, uh, but, but, but saying, you know, you also are to blame for that. Jesus again is saying, no divorce, no remarriage after divorce, but with one exception when it's on the ground of sexual immorality. Now let's come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to our text. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So that is a restatement of the teaching of Jesus that we just saw in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. Now here in verse 11 we have the second word for divorce. The husband should not divorce uh, his wife and has the idea of sending her away. Now the implication here in verses 10 and 11 is that these things apply equally to husband and to wife. Amongst the Jews, they said that a man had the right to divorce his wife, but a wife did not have the right to divorce her husband. But here in this teaching, the implication is that these things that Paul says apply equally to husband and wife. If you are married to a believer, the Lord forbids you from divorcing with only one exception, the exception that we saw in Matthew. Yet Paul anticipates that some believers will disobey Christ and will divorce. And so Paul explains Christ's prohibition of remarriage after divorce. In verse 11, Paul says the divorced person should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to their former spouse. The Christian's desire should be to reconcile. To reconcile as a reflection of the gospel. You know, that is how we have been saved, through reconciliation. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, says to believers, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were at enmity with, with, with God. We were in rebellion against God. We were continually offending God, and God's wrath was upon us. But God reconciled us to Himself at the cross. God made peace between us and Himself at the cross. As at the cross, God dealt with the source of the enmity. He took our sin and He placed it upon His Son. And His Son paid the penalty for our sin, reconciling us to God. And so we know God now as our Heavenly Father. We are in relationship with God. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord because God reconciled us to Himself at the cross. 
And now our desire, as those who have received the reconciliation, should be to reconcile with other people. To reconcile with others as a reflection of the gospel. If God in His grace could reconcile us to Himself, certainly two believers can be reconciled to one another who have the Spirit of God within them. Because our conflicts and our sins against one another, though serious, pale in comparison to our sin against the Holy God. When it's on the vertical dimension, it is far, it is far greater than when it is on the horizontal dimension. And so if we've been reconciled on the vertical dimension, then two of us who are in Christ can certainly reconcile on the... On the I may have mixed it up. We can reconcile on, on the, the horizontal dimension. Jesus said in Matthew 5.23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. So reconciliation is not an option for the Christian. We are commanded to do everything we can to be reconciled one with another. So much so that, that if we are on our way to corporate worship and we realize that someone, a brother has something against us, we're, instead of going straight to the corporate worship, we're first to go to the brother and be reconciled with them and then come to the corporate worship. So here we have this word reconciliation in our text, in verse 11. But if she does separate from her husband, it would equally apply to, to the, the husband as well. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. After two believers divorce... As long as neither person has since married another person, reconciliation would include restoring your marriage. And by God's grace, this has happened many times. There have been many Christian couples who have been divorced, and the Holy Spirit has worked within their hearts, has worked in both hearts to bring conviction of sin, conviction of how they contributed uh, to that rupture in that marriage, how they both contributed to that divorce. And the Spirit has brought them to repentance, and they have confessed their sins one to another. They have forgiven one another, and they have been remarried to one another. All right. By God's grace, this has happened many times. There's been complete reconciliation between two believers who were divorced, and then they, the, the, the marriage is fully restored. And that is about living out the gospel. About living out the gospel of grace. Reflecting the gospel in our relationship one with another. When you have two believers, reconciliation is always possible. No matter how huge your differences are, no matter how deeply or repeatedly you have sinned against each other, because you both have the Spirit of God, because you are both united to the Lord Jesus Christ, abiding in Him as the true vine, because you both have been reconciled to God, saved by God's grace, reconciliation, restoration of the marriage is possible. 
It does not depend on your strength. It does not depend upon your wisdom. It depends on the grace of God, which is given you in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it takes two people to reconcile. There may be one person who has the desire to do everything possible to reconcile, and the other individual may not be willing to reconcile. It takes two people to reconcile. So sometimes it is not possible for you as an individual to be reconciled. And so 1 Corinthians 7.11 says your other option is to remain unmarried. Remarriage to another person is not permissible. You must uphold the permanence of marriage to the glory of God by either remaining unmarried or reconciling. Now, if this is where you are at, it is important to remain mindful of what Paul says in this chapter about the advantages of being single. If your desire is to reconcile, but currently reconciliation is not possible because the other individual is not willing to reconcile. If it looks like the scripture is calling you to remain unmarried for the rest of your life in order to uphold the permanence of marriage to the glory of God, understand that you are not stuck in an inferior position. Paul has spoken already to the unmarried and to the widows. He has spoken of the, there being advantages. When it comes to serving the Lord, there are advantages to being single. And he will elaborate upon that later on in this chapter. So if you're in that position where you cannot, um, in, in, in a way that is acceptable to God, you cannot remarry, understand you are not in an inferior position. Paul says there are advantages to being single. And that is what you need to grab a hold of and pursue. Now, that is the first half of our text. The second half gives instruction to Christians who are married to an unbeliever. And the main instruction here in the second half is, if you are married to an unbeliever who consents to continue the marriage, you should not divorce. If you're married to an unbeliever who consents to continue the marriage, you should not divorce. Look closely in our text at verse 12. To the rest I say... Back in verse 8, the apostle addressed the unmarried and the widows. Then in verse 10, he addressed the married. And now, in verse 12, he addresses the rest. Who are the rest? Well, it becomes clear, as Paul continues, that he's addressing believers who are married to an unbeliever. Now, as we come to this passage, which gives instruction to believers who are married to an unbeliever, Do understand from other portions of Scripture that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. A believer should not marry an unbeliever. If you look down in this chapter to verse 39, Paul states this. Verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies... She is free to to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. She's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord means only to another believer. 
Only to someone else who is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, also look at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6, I will begin reading in verse 14, the passage about not being unequally yoked. Second Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So he's talking about close partnerships between individuals. Close fellowship between individuals. And what is the closest human relationship? Marriage. It's the only human relationship that God calls a one flesh relationship. So certainly, while this passage may include other sorts of relationships, it certainly includes the relationship of marriage. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. If someone who is a believer marries an unbeliever, they are yoking themselves to an unbeliever. Paul says, don't do that. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So very clear instruction. The believer is not to have a, a close partnership with an unbeliever that certainly would prohibit a believer from marrying an unbeliever. So come back to our text, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul addresses believers who are married to an unbeliever. Oftentimes a person will be saved after they get married. And then, what is the new believer to do? They got married before they were saved, now they're saved, now they're a believer, and their spouse is an unbeliever. What is this new believer now to do? Should they divorce their unbelieving spouse now that they are a believer? Would it be acceptable to divorce their unbelieving spouse in order to then marry a believer? Well, the apostle tells us, Look in our text at verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now at the beginning of these these verses, in verse 12, Paul says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. We saw back in verses 10 through 11 that Paul reiterated teaching that the Lord Jesus gave during his earthly ministry. But that is not the case in what Paul says here in verses 12 and 13. He's no longer reiterating teaching that Jesus gave. Here, Paul adds to what Jesus taught, addressing a situation that Jesus did not address. 
Now, this does not mean that Paul's teaching is less authoritative than Jesus' teaching. There are some people who might tell you that. That's not true. Jesus Christ appointed Paul as his apostle. Jesus Christ gave the Apostle Paul authority to speak the things of Christ. To speak as Christ's official representative. To speak with the authority of Christ. Not only did Paul speak with the authority of Christ as an apostle of Christ, but what we have here is given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, making it the very Word of God. What Paul says is no less authoritative than what Jesus said. But he's saying, what I'm saying here in verses 12 and 13 is not something that Jesus said, it's something that I'm adding to what Jesus said. Now I'm addressing something that Jesus did not address. So what he says is, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. This new covenant situation is different from the old covenant situation that we read of in Ezra chapter 10. In Ezra chapter 10, Jewish men had sinfully married foreign women who worshipped false gods. And in Ezra 10, the Lord required them to divorce their pagan wives. Now what they had done in the book of Ezra was comparable to a church receiving as members people of other religions. That would be wrong for a church to do. You know, say there is, is someone who is a Buddhist. All right, they're not a Christian, they're a Buddhist. And we receive them as a member of our church. That would be wrong. And it would be imperative that such people be removed from the church's membership. That's what was happening in Ezra chapter 10. Understand that the Mosaic law for Israel gave the death penalty for an Israelite worshipping false gods. So what applied in Ezra doesn't necessarily apply under the New Covenant. Different situation. The New Covenant situation of a believer finding themselves married to an unbeliever is very different from the situation in Ezra 10 with Israel. Here in our text, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle says, If a believer has an unbelieving spouse who is willing to continue living together in the marriage commitment, then the believer must not divorce the unbeliever. The believer must seek to, to strengthen their marriage. The believer must seek to be a faithful husband or a faithful wife to their unbelieving spouse. It's not okay for the believer to remain married outwardly, but in his or her heart check out of the marriage. That would be a misapplication of this passage. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that the Christian does is to be done to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything that we do is to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. And everything that we do, we are to give thanks to God the Father 
through Him. We're not to do anything wholeheartedly as we live for Christ. So here, the believer is told, don't divorce your unbelieving spouse. Implication, do the opposite of divorce. Seek to strengthen your marriage. Seek to be a faithful husband. Seek to be a faithful wife to your unbelieving spouse. Don't just outwardly stick in the marriage, but put your heart into that marriage to the unbelieving spouse. Now, why is the believer to remain married to the unbeliever? Look at verse 14. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Paul says, your unbelieving spouse and unbelieving children are holy. Because you as a believer are a member of the family. You are not unclean because of them. They are holy because of you. Now what does it mean that they are holy? It doesn't mean they're saved. They're unbelievers. What does it mean that they are holy? The word holy literally means set apart. What Paul means when he says your unbelieving spouse and any unbelieving children are holy is that they are set apart to receive a Christian witness and influence from within that other families do not have. You know, we as believers, we, we would love to get a Christian missionary into every unbelieving family in our neighborhood, would we not? Those of you who are married to unbelievers are that missionary in your family. You are a day-to-day witness and influence for Christ in the lives of your spouse and children that no one else can be. As you live out the gospel in your marriage relationship and in the relationship with your children. You are not inferior to brothers and sisters who have believing spouses. You have a special ministry from the Lord Jesus Christ. And your family is blessed by God because of you. Even if your family disagrees with your beliefs and ridicules your beliefs, they are made holy in this sense. If you were to divorce, this special ministry to your unbelieving spouse would cease. And your special ministry to your unbelieving children would likely be negatively affected. Who would they live with after the divorce? Paul continues in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Which means if the unbelieving spouse divorces you, do not fight your spouse on it. Though the divorce would be occasion for grief, you are not to stand in the way of your spouse. Paul says, in this case, you are not enslaved. The NIV translates it, you are not bound. Meaning that you are not required in this case by God to continue the marriage. Verse 11 required the believer who has been divorced from a believer to either remain unmarried or to be reconciled and restore the marriage. Paul here says this is not the requirement for the believer whose unbelieving spouse divorces them. 
You are to let your unbelieving spouse go if that is what they really want to do. Now in this case, would it be permissible for the believer to later marry a believer? You are a believer married to an unbeliever. Your unbelieving spouse is not willing uh, to continue to live in a marriage commitment with you. And they divorce you. Would it then be permissible for you as the believer to later marry a believer? Yes, it would be. As long as the divorce was occasioned by your faith in Christ and obedience to Christ and your spouse's unwillingness to continue the marriage. You as a believer cannot treat your unbelieving spouse terribly, provoking your spouse to divorce you and then go marry someone else. No, you can't do that. Paul assumes the holiness of the believer in the marriage relationship. Jesus permitted remarriage for the innocent party after, the divor- after divorcing on the grounds of sexual immorality. And it follows that remarriage is permitted for the innocent party who is a believer in the situation that Paul addresses in verse 15. Now Paul continues in verse 15. Look at the, the end of verse 15. He says, God has called you to peace. With the New American Standard 2020 edition, God has called you in peace. Either to peace or in peace. Now the statement here, God has called you to peace, may relate to two ideas in the second half of our text. First, that God has called you to peace is a reason for letting the unbelieving spouse go who is unwilling to continue living together in a marriage commitment. And second, that God has called you to peace is a reason for continuing the marriage when the unbelieving spouse consents to continue together in the marriage commitment. God has called you to peace. Verse 16, For, you do, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I interpret verse 16 as being spoken by Paul optimistically. This is the concluding verse in this section addressed to believers who are married to an unbeliever. Paul here in verse 16 is reinforcing the instruction not to divorce. And what he says here in verse 16 goes hand in hand with what he said in verse 14 about the unbeliever being made holy because of the believer. Paul says, as you continue in the marriage, though it may be quite challenging to continue that marriage with the unbeliever, as you continue in the marriage, he says, you might save your unbelieving spouse. You might save your unbelieving spouse. Paul uses the same terminology in chapter 9, verse 22b, where he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I might save some souls. What does Paul mean here? You might save your unbelieving spouse. He means you might be the person that the Lord uses to lead them to Christ for salvation. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, we read of this role that God gives us in the salvation of others. Romans 10, 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? God does not just magically save people without them hearing the gospel. How does God save people? 
He sends people to them with the gospel. For your spouse to be saved, they need to come in contact with the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. Well, you may be the person that God has put in their life for them to hear the gospel from. God may use you and your witness to lead them to Christ in saving faith. So let me ask you, if you are married to an unbeliever, is it your ambition to be used of the Lord to lead your spouse to Christ for salvation? It should be. Brothers and sisters, it should be your ambition to be used of the Lord to lead your unbelieving spouse to Christ for salvation. So that raises a question. How are you to go about seeking the salvation of your spouse? I want to give you three essentials. This certainly is not the whole picture, but I want to give you three essentials. First, the first essential is praying daily for your spouse's salvation. James 5.16b says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as the New American Standard renders James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. God has made it clear in Scripture. He, he does a lot of His work around us through the prayers of His people. Sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. God answers prayer. He answers the prayers of the righteous. He answers the prayers of those who pray according to His will. He answers the prayers of those who pray with faith. Brother or sister, pray daily for your spouse's salvation. Don't let a day go by that you do not pray for their salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. You yourself cannot save them. But God saves souls. Pray for your spouse's salvation. The second essential is seizing the opportunities that the Lord gives you to speak with your spouse about Christ. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Pray for opportunities to speak with your spouse about Christ. And if the Lord gives you those opportunities, seize those opportunities. And speak the truth in love. Speak the truth with patience and grace. Speak of Christ. The third essential is living in a godly way with your spouse and before your spouse. Living in a godly way with your spouse and before your spouse. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 verse 1. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So even if some do not obey the word, meaning they're not believers, they're not Christians, so even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Paul is not advocating give no attention to your outward appearance. Love for your spouse will move you to give some attention to your outward appearance. But he's saying put more emphasis on what is more important, on what is truly beautiful in God's eyes. A adorning, that your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So he says in verse 1, Be subject to your own husband so that if that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Paul is at least saying godly conduct in your relationship with your spouse and godly conduct before your spouse is just as important as speaking the word of Christ. In some situations, even more important. Your spouse has to hear the gospel to be saved. They cannot be saved merely by seeing your godly behavior. But he's saying, your conduct is so important. Living out the gospel with someone who can be hard to live with. Someone who may not treat you so well. They don't have the Spirit of God. Our expectations of believers are different from our expectations of unbelievers. If they don't have the Spirit of God, they're not in Christ, all right, we're not going to expect that they're going to treat us in a, in a fully godly way. We, we ask them to love us. We have some expectations of what they will do for us. But we can't expect them to live like a Christian. All right. Paul is saying, in the midst of a relationship where you may not be treated so well, Wives, be subject to your unbelieving husbands. So even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. As they see there's something different about you. There's something about you that enables you to give me grace. There's something about you that enables you to respect me even when I don't treat you well. There's something about you that enables you to, to love me with a deeper love than I've ever known. I don't have that love. But you, you have that love. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And we can flip this around for the husbands. Believing husbands, love your unbelieving wives with the sort of love with which you've been loved by Christ. Love your wives with a gracious love. Love your wife with a selfless love. So even if some do not obey the word, they may, may be one without a word by the conduct of their husbands. Let Christ be seen in the way that you relate to your unbelieving spouse. Let them see that Christ has given you a new heart. Let them see that Christ has removed that, that heart of stone 
Let them see that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Let them see that you know Jesus, the Savior, who gave Himself up for sinners upon the cross. That they may be one without a word. So three essentials. One, praying daily for your spouse's salvation. Two, seizing the opportunities the Lord gives you to speak with your spouse about Christ. Three, living in a godly way with your spouse and before your spouse. And this is all to be done by God's grace for Christ's sake. It's not to make my life so pleasant. It's to be done for Christ's sake. It's all to be done for God's glory. Not for my glory, for God's glory. Preacher Stephen Lawson told the story of his wife Anne's mother living out this passage that we've just studied. Uh, When Anne was a child, her family attended a church with sound doctrine. But none of them in the family were saved initially. Then Anne's mother was saved. However, Anne's father was not saved. Anne's father was a hard man. Yet Anne's mother persevered in this marriage to this unbeliever. As Anne's mother exerted the influence of Christ upon her family, Anne was saved. And then over time, Anne's siblings were saved one by one. And many years later, when Anne's father was finally on his deathbed, the Lord saved him and professed faith in Christ. Don't lose hope, brothers and sisters. We serve a God who saves. Sometimes He saves sooner, sometimes He saves later, but we serve a God who saves. There's always hope. As the Apostle Paul encourages those who are married to unbelievers to persevere in their marriage covenant, he asks, how do you know, wife? Whether you will save your husband. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The reason to persevere in marriage is not your personal happiness and fulfillment. There is something far more important than your personal happiness and fulfillment. Because the world does not revolve around you. It revolves around someone else. The reason to persevere is to honor Christ. The reason to persevere is to serve Christ. The reason to persevere is to make Christ known. The reason to persevere is to live out the gospel. The reason to persevere is to adorn the gospel of grace. The reason to persevere is to glorify God. With the prayer that the Lord may see fit to use you in bringing your spouse to saving faith. When this is your mindset, the Lord Jesus Christ satisfies your soul like nothing of this world ever could. We can go after the things the world goes after. You can think, well, if I'm just married to the right person, then I'll be happy. I'm just married to the right person, I will be satisfied. But if that is your mindset, you will never be satisfied No matter how many husbands you try, no matter how many wives you try, you will never be satisfied. There's only one who can satisfy your soul. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is satisfaction, there is joy, there is peace in serving the Lord Jesus Christ, 
no matter the circumstances, no matter the trials, no matter the difficulties, no matter the challenges, there is joy and peace in serving Christ. In knowing Him, in living for His glory, in being a witness for Him. That's how we're to live our life. Not running after the things the world runs after, but seeking Christ, serving Christ, glorifying God. Well, we have seen two main instructions in our text. One, if you are married to a believer, you should not divorce. Two, if you are married to an unbeliever who consents to continue the marriage, you should not divorce. Rather, you should seek to strengthen your marriage relationship. You should hold fast to your spouse. Now, if in the past you divorced your spouse without biblical grounds, you need to know that there is forgiveness in Christ. If you will humble yourself before the Lord and confess your sin to Him and ask for His forgiveness, He will forgive you. Brothers and sisters, we have the wonderful promise in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And His forgiveness frees you then to confess your sin to, to those people whom you wronged and to ask their forgiveness. Now understand that God's forgiveness is not a license to sin. We don't say, well, I, I know this would be wrong, but I'm going to do it anyhow because I know God will forgive me. No. God's forgiveness is not a license to sin. And if you have that mentality, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways because God will forgive me, then you need to take a close look at your soul to see where you stand with the Lord. Sin is to be grievous to us. We are to hate sin because God hates sin. Yet when we have sinned and have confessed our sin, we are to rejoice in the marvelous forgiveness that God has given us through Christ. Now this morning, if you are married to an unbeliever, know that your Heavenly Father's grace is sufficient for you. As you're in this marriage with an unbeliever, your Heavenly Father's grace is sufficient for you in order to enable you to love your spouse. His grace is sufficient for you to respect your spouse. His grace is sufficient for you that you would serve your spouse, that you would be faithful to your spouse, that you would pray for your spouse, that you would forgive your spouse, and that you would persevere in these things. His grace is sufficient for you. Your Heavenly Father is with you every moment. He has given you His promise in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And because He will never leave you, because He will never forsake you, you can hold fast to your spouse to the glory of God. And the same goes for you if you are married to a believer. Just being married to a believer doesn't mean everything goes nice and easy and, and well. If you are married to a believer, know your Heavenly Father's grace is sufficient for you. For loving your spouse, respecting them, serving them, being faithful to them, praying for them, forgiving them, and persevering in these things. And if you as a married couple have never resolved that divorce is not an option, I exhort you to do so today together before God. That's what the first verses in our text tell us. When two believers are married, divorce is not an option. So resolve in your hearts today 
that this is the case. The divorce will not be an option. God's grace will always be sufficient for you to reconcile and to grow together in living as a married couple for the glory of God. Divorce is not an option. Now, if you don't have that mindset that it's not an option, if you think it is an option, you're already taking one step in that direction. You're already walking towards defeat. You can deal with the difficulties. You can handle the problems in your marriage together when together you have resolved divorce is not an option. So resolve that today if you have not done so. And if you are not married and may get married one day, resolve now that if you will get married, divorce will not be an option. Resolve that you will marry a believer, only a believer, and that divorce will not be an option. Now, our text uses the term unbeliever. And elsewhere in this epistle, we find the corresponding term believer. Unbeliever, believer. Let me ask you, which one are you? Are you a believer? Or are you an unbeliever? Believing is a central part of the Christian message. The gospel, the good news, is about a gift of salvation that is to be received by believing in Christ. The message of this salvation is the best news in all the universe. I want you to turn over to Romans 4. We're not coming back to 1 Corinthians. Turn over to Romans 4. Thinking about this term, believer, in contrast to the term unbeliever. Romans 4. Starting at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And there's many people today who try to be justified by works. They try to do good things. They try to obey God in order to have a right standing with God. The Bible describes that as trying to be justified by works. Looking to your good works for a right standing with God. It says here in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is the good news of the Bible. This is the gospel of of grace. The one who works, for the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. What is our due? Well, the law is given to us not to give us a way of making ourselves righteous. The law is given to us to show us that we are sinners. We have transgressed God's law. If, If we get what is our due... We will suffer God's judgment eternally in hell. That is what is due us for what we have done. 
There is no one righteous, not, not even one. Now the gospel says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's so many people who recognize that they are ungodly, and so then they try to work their way into God's favor. But that is impossible. Because God is holy. God is just. The gospel is to the one who does not work. The one who turns away from their own works. The one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. How can this be? How can a just God justify the ungodly? Wouldn't that make Him an unjust judge? Normally, but not when He sent His own Son to suffer the penalty for you. And that's what the Gospel is about. The Gospel is about what God has done to save sinners by sending His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey the law of God perfectly on our behalf and then to die upon the cross paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He paid that penalty in our place. And so the gospel is, when you believe in Jesus Christ, though you are ungodly, God declares you righteous by His grace. By His grace, God as the judge, He looks at you, He looks at Christ, He, counts, uh, he recognizes that He has counted your sins against Christ, and He counts Christ's righteousness to you, And He declares you righteous. Now, I'm ungodly. I'm not righteous in the way that I live. But God has declared me righteous. He has given me a free gift of a right standing with Him that was achieved by Jesus Christ as my substitute, as my mediator. And so the gospel calls you not to work your way into a right standing with God, but the gospel calls you to believe the gospel. To believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in the one who justifies the ungodly. To believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. To believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord. Turn over to Ephesians 2. This is our last passage. I want to show you one more passage that is connected to this. Ephesians chapter 2. So imperative that every one of us in this room understand these truths. What we have studied in 1 Corinthians is not a way to make yourself right with God. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The gospel is clear. 
God gives salvation by His grace. And to receive that salvation, you must believe in the Son. You must renounce your own supposed righteousness. And you must place your faith squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not by works. It's not by a combination of faith and works. Salvation is by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's for the glory of God alone. And so the Christian is called in the Bible a believer. A believer. Because by God's grace I have been brought to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's through believing in the gospel, believing in Christ, that I have been justified, that I have been saved. And forevermore, I am in God's sight a believer. There's an unbeliever and there's a believer. Which one are you? If you are an unbeliever, I exhort you today to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, believing in Jesus as your Savior, trusting in Him as your Lord, to follow Him the rest of your days. Not trusting in your works, not trusting in anything that you do, but trusting in Christ alone. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Your Word can be hard to accept and Your Word can be hard to follow. But You have sent Your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of Your Word. You've sent Your Holy Spirit to save those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to bring the dead to life. You've sent your Spirit to remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And you place your Spirit within every believer to empower us to live a new life for your glory. To no longer live for ourselves. That's how we once lived. We confess that before you. We once lived for ourselves. We were selfish to the core. But you have redeemed us and you've given us your Spirit that now... We might no longer live for ourselves, but now we might live for the one who died for us and was raised for us. Oh Lord, apart from Christ, we can do nothing that pleases you. But we thank you for your promise that through Christ, we can do all things to which you call us as Christ gives us strength. We pray, Father, that you would give grace to each one here. Lord, may you save those who do not know you. May you give your, your grace to those who are married to a believer to be faithful to their spouse, to hold fast to their spouse, to love their spouse as Christ loved the church, to submit to their husband as unto the Lord. Lord, may you grow these marriages. I pray for those this morning who are married to unbelievers. We pray, Father, that you would give them your grace uh, to, to live out the gospel with their spouse, to show their spouse the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the patience of Christ, to speak the truth of Christ in love, to be an influence 
for Christ in their life. We pray, Father, that you would bless that witness, that you would give grace to persevere, grace to love not based on what the other one does, but grace to love as we have been loved, grace to love graciously. I pray, Father, for those who are not married, who who may be married one day. We ask you, Father, to not let them forget what we have studied in your word. Your word is clear. It's not so hard to understand. What's hard to do is to live it out. Lord, I pray that you would equip those who will be married one day uh, to, to, to live out your word in holding fast to the spouse that you bless them with. To be faithful to their spouse all the way until death do they part for your glory. Use what we have seen, Father, in all the ways that are needed in our hearts and lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.